Hallelujah. Father, this day we acknowledge the promises that are yes and amen unto us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, if we were to look at our own track record and have any assurance of the future, we'd be absolutely devastated. Nevertheless, we look to Christ today. It is because He never fails that we are assured of eternal life. It is because His shed blood was sufficient to cover our sins that we have hope of redemption. It's because He lived the perfect life satisfying the law of God that there's any righteousness credited to our account upon the imputation of His holy law-keeping unto the credit of His own when He takes our sin upon Him, dies on Calvary, and grants unto us His white robes of perfect God's law-keeping righteousness. We exalt, we rejoice, we proclaim, we ascribe glory unto our King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, our Messiah and Savior. It is His love, it is His intent to please the Father in taking on the burden of our sins, the calling of redemption, agreed to with the three persons of the Trinity and accomplished in time in the incarnation and the fullness of the work on Calvary, His death, His burial, His resurrection and ascension, that is the sum and substance of our hope. And this we proclaim, and upon this rock we stand today. Now as we turn to your Holy Scripture, wherein is laid out the beautiful, intricate, profound, powerful, and spiritually saturated with glorious gospel truth, realities revealed from the oldest pages of your covenant before Christ came to the new covenant. Lord, in the last pages of your recorded Scripture, I pray that you would open our eyes to see these glorious connections and that our hearts would be ever more satisfied in the assurance of our salvation. And our testimony would be all the bolder to a world lost in their transgressions and sins that the only way of salvation is hope in Christ alone. In all of this, that you may be glorified, your church edified, your kingdom advanced. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning, what a glorious privilege it is to turn to the Holy Scriptures. I pray that you would open them with me today. I encourage you to do so by turning to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 will be our text today, verses 8 through 17. In a moment, let us stand for the reading of God's Word. Let me give you just a brief title and an introduction. The aim of this morning's message is to consider the relationship between circumcision and baptism. As you recall, we've been in Genesis 17. And the theme of that passage in the story of Abraham, in the narrative of Scripture, is the covenant sign. We've, had, we've explored covenant initiated, if you will, in Genesis chapter 12, where God first introduces His promises to His called out one, His significant son's servant, Abraham. And then in Genesis 15, we saw an incredible covenant ratification ceremony, wherein God swore to His own hurt, if you will, as this ritual passing through split animals revealed to Abraham with certainty that God was declaring by vow ceremony that he would accomplish his promises to his servant. And then we have Genesis 17, which could be called covenant signified. And here a covenant sign is delivered in God's grace to Abraham, where he would know for certain by a mark even in his own body and in his lineage that God's promises are assured everlasting and will be fulfilled. Now, the promise of the covenant was a forever one, and it yet continues today. But the fulfillment of circumcision as a covenant sign has taken the shape, the form, and the fulfillment of baptism. And thus, today we have kind of an excursus message or an alongside message to Genesis 17 from Colossians chapter 2, 
wherein the apostle shows us some of the relationships between <clears throat> baptism in the new and circumcision of the old. With that introduction and this title, The New Circumcision, <clears throat> would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word and let us consider Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. <clears throat> Listen as the holy word of God is proclaimed to you this day. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy <clears throat> and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. <clears throat> and you who were dead in the, in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us, given us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Let me open this message a little in an unusual way. I just wanted to give a brief disclaimer. Today I will be applying my message with a certain hermeneutical context or understanding of the teaching of Scripture. The conviction of providence as a church, myself specifically, is a Reformed Baptist position. So today, this message assumes the Reformed Baptist view in proclaiming the significance and application of baptism. However, I have many uh, trusted and longtime friends and influences in the Presbyterian community as well. And I sort of have a secret wish that one day I could be in a communion which acknowledged both views. So today it might sound a little polemical, which means kind of an argument against another side. I don't mean it to sound that way. I mean to be charitable and today's message to be one of disclosure, mainly just showing or laying forth uh, the views as I understand them and as the church holds them so that you can do with them as you will, have a better understanding of where we stand and perhaps even open up later conversation for discussion along these issues because these are difficult and in some cases, complicated topics. One more disclaimer, my message today is not to presume to comment on anything along the lines of baptismal regeneration. That is, there are some ostensibly confessing uh, churches or communions that believe that baptism actually regenerates, changes the heart by virtue of the act itself. This is uh, overtly, in my view, excluded from scripture. And so today's message other than that disclaimer, who does not consider that a viable option in the least. Nevertheless, we continue 
with our passage today and some attending parallel scriptures and seeking to understand baptism as the new circumcision. Here we go. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 um, has uh, some uh, information along these lines as well. If you'd like to turn there as a cross-reference, let us begin in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 11, same author, of course, as Colossians, namely the Apostle Paul, informing the church as to the significance of what has happened to them in taking on their identity as Christians and being saved from their sins and walking now as, in a, as a one who is in union with Christ, as a believer, as a Christian, as the new and early church, he says the following, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, Christ Jesus, you uh, who once were, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, you just read, establishes in the apostolic record, in the words of Paul, that the Jew-Gentile separation that was based on physical circumcision has been transcended through the shed blood of a unifying mediator. Said another way, the shed blood of circumcision at one time separated symbolically a people, namely the Jews, from the pagans around them symbolically who were uncircumcised. Paul says a dynamic of this yet remains, but its fulfillment is clear. No longer is it the shed blood of physical circumcision that separates his people from others, but instead it is the shed blood of the unifying mediator that gathers to himself a people and declares them distinct from the world. Those who believe that the shed blood of Jesus Christ cut off their sin, cleanses them from sin, atones from sin, they are a people set apart, unique, and qualified to bear the name Christian, if you will. They are the ones who are now unique and set apart from the world. The symbolic picture gives way to the substance. An enduring theme in Colossians 2, shadow versus substance. Verse 17 gives us that helpful analogy and distinctive. Verse 13, again in Ephesians 2, quote, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The shed blood of circumcision, which symbolically and provisionally, that means for a time, set apart a people, gives way to Christ's shed blood that binds us in covenant with him and his people by extension. So in this revelation of covenant sign fulfillment, we have a classic example of shadow, that would be the ritual identity of old covenant circumcision, giving way to the substance, which would be the blood of Christ and the fellowship that comes consequently. So this is helpful. This is a context. This is the way covenant signs, symbols, ceremonies, and rituals uh, serve their purpose to reveal God's truth across time. And you will find this in a pattern, and I encourage you to study this or keep this in mind as you study Scripture. The ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law and worship give way inevitably to their substance in Christ. Therefore, what once was commanded by way of animal sacrifice now is fulfilled in the blood of the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, uh, as it were. And there are many other examples. Therefore, these, uh, the fulfillment of these covenant signs, symbols, ceremonies, types, or rituals render obsolete what has gone before them, 
Their purpose was to veal, reveal God's truth across time. Circumcision, you could say Abrahamic circumcision, has, rendered, has been rendered therefore obsolete, having fulfilled its purpose, giving way to a new administration in the timeline of covenant promise. There is still a covenant sign, namely baptism, that is administered, but in the timeline of God's purposes, it's different now. It takes on the substance uh, leaving the shadow behind, if you will. Colossians 2, our text today, 8 through 17, lays out this reality in profound language. As Paul clarifies for the New Testament church how the, covenants, uh, how the covenant is fulfilled and sustained in Christ. How is the covenant of Abraham fulfilled and sustained in Christ? Colossians 2 answers that question. As the signs of old served as an external confirmation or seal of an internal reality... So it, uh, in part, circumcision served to do. So baptism, similarly today, reminds, uh, remains a point of contact for the church. It represents God's covenant promises. And it is something that happens in our experience that points to a reality, inwardly speaking. We have been raised with Christ. We have, been, we have died to our sin. And baptism, among other, other things, signifies, seals, and confirms as much. So baptism remains a point of contact for the church today. It is, if you will, the new circumcision. So let us consider the explanatory weight, how much Paul does by way of explanation in Colossians 2 today with respect to baptism as, a, a circum, as circumcision fulfilled or the relationship between circumcision and baptism expounded in Colossians 2.18. Let me give you a heading. The new circumcision or baptism is three things that I want to qualify by our contact or by our text today. The bap baptism is number one a posture of conviction. Verses eight and nine, may I submit, demonstrate as much. Number two, baptism is a rite of covenant headship affiliation. That might sound complicated, but each covenant in Scripture has a head. The Abrahamic covenant had as its head what, kids? Who is the head of the Abrahamic covenant, kids? You might think Jesus, but think a little more closely. Who is the head of the Abrahamic covenant in the back? Ooh, Abrahamic covenant. It's a little clue. Yeah, very good, Rennick. So as long as we're on this, uh, as long as we're on this uh, uh, train of thought here, who is the head of the Mosaic covenant? Anybody know? Yeah, close. Moses, did I hear Moses in the house? Very good. One more. Who's the head? Well, let's go two more. Who's the head of the Adamic covenant? Jesus. Ooh, ooh, not quite, not quite. Adamic, Adam? Oh, no, no, not quite, not quite. Adam. Adam, very good. Finally, I'm going to throw a trick uh, question at you. Who's the head of the covenant of grace? Jesus. Very good. Okay, you got it. So we start to grasp this concept. The right of covenant headship affiliation. So circumcision demonstrated in that ritual act that you belong to your covenant head, Abraham, so to speak. And then uh, number three, uh, baptism is a right of applied circumcision. So it's a right of covenant headship affiliation. It's a right of applied circumcision. Verses 11, 13, and 14 make this. And then we'll close with some thoughts on the fulfillment and continuity of baptism as uh, the substance of the shadow circumcision. So that's a brief overview for our message today. Let's begin with point one. The new circumcision or baptism is, first, and, first of all, in our study today, a posture of conviction. 
Let me give a brief note about this text. I'm taking verse 12 as a locus point, or you could say a center of gravity. I believe verse 12 is central to understanding the context around it. Let me read it for you. Paul says, Having been buried with him in baptism, and which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Right there, you could take as the center of gravity for what Paul is saying. The sum and substance of what baptism represents, inasmuch as in Christ we have experienced, as he says, buried uh, a burial with Christ and a resurrection with Christ, and this happens through faith, and it is due to the powerful working of God. These are essential, substantive, foundational truths to understanding this context. Keep that in mind as we consider baptism as a posture of conviction. Notice verses 8 and 9. Paul gives this admonition. See to it that no one takes you captive by, by, here's a list of things. Number one, philosophy. Number two, and empty deceit. Number three, and according to human tradition. Number four, according to the elementary spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. So Paul is giving reminding the church that baptism, inasmuch as it is a posture of conviction, builds your confidence to oppose views, worldviews, to the contrary. I wonder if any of you have ever thought, if you've been baptized, if you've ever been thought back to the fact that there was a ritual, there was a covenant sign that you participated in that confirmed in your experience a spiritual reality that ought to give you strength and confidence to oppose worldviews to the contrary. In other words, Paul is saying that because you, if you're a Christian and have been baptized, because you have been buried with him in baptism, and which you were also raised with him in the, uh, in the powerful work, through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and since, verse 9, in him the whole fullness of, the body, uh, fullness of deity dwells bodily, then this is how you can live in light of that. See to it, verse 8, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition and elemental spirits of the world. Here's a little background for you. What is Paul dealing with by way of competing worldviews at the time these words were written? Well, here's perhaps a helpful quote from my study Bible. The Colossians appear to have come under the influence of a combination of Jewish and pagan piety, that means claim to holiness, presenting itself as a philosophical system and encouraging submission to these occult, astral, or cosmic powers. So it was just basically the spirituality of the day that was a mixture of a bunch of different things, like a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of tradition, a little bit of culture, and yet a little bit of your experience and my experience and our history together. You mix it all up, you kind of spiritualize it, and then you begin to identify with it. This is what Paul says is the philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, and elemental spirits of his day. And if you were to read some books about what was going on back then, you might think this was absurd and stupid. I can never imagine being be deceived by such a thing. That's not really the point. You know, make no mistake and fear the Lord because these powers, the cultural influences, that is to say, the philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, and elemental spirits of our day are just as potentially deceptive as the ones that were alive and well and present in Paul's day. 
And we don't need to alert, you know, tune in to too much social media for proof of this. I'll give you one example, though. Today I was just, or yesterday, I was disheartened. I was listening to a video interview of a fairly prominent Christian who I knew at one time to be very sound in his theology. So I knew that his poor answer did not come as a result of lack of understanding. No, it came from lack of conviction. And yes, he was asked about, you know, what would you do if your son, let's say he's 23 years old, hypothetical situation, wanted to get married to another man? And he introduced him as my husband, and would you go to that wedding and so forth? Well, the man never really answered the question. He hemmed and hawed, he danced about it. It seemed like he didn't want to answer the question. And I know from past interaction with his body of thought that it wasn't a problem of theology or understanding. No, what was missing in my judgment in that interaction was conviction. And Paul says that the cultural pressures of your day today are so strong and so potentially suffocating that you need to be armed against them. And the means of armament, the means of confidence and strength to oppose false competing worldviews comes from realizing the weight and significance of your experience in Christ symbolized by baptism. In other words, since you have been buried with Christ, since you have been raised with him, and if you have personally experienced and are assured in your soul of, your, of, of Christ's power to raise you from the grave itself, suddenly it makes the other enemies of God's word seem a little smaller, does it not? But if you allow the ideas of the day whatever the popular philosophy is, the emotionally charged arguments of the culture, the popular appeal, the, virtually, the virtue, uh, virtue signaling of a postmodern era, if you allow that to be an intimidating voice in your ear, bigger and stronger and louder and more convincing than the fact that your sins were buried in Christ Jesus and that you were raised from the death of your sin by the power of Christ Jesus' work, and that you were assured resurrection unto reunion with Christ on the final day because he rose from the dead, if you get those two mixed up, you're going to get in trouble. And the Colossian church was in trouble. Thus, Paul returned them back to baptism, that covenant sign, the new circumcision, is, if you will, that gave them a posture of conviction. It was the center of gravity that allowed them to oppose the forces that would un otherwise undo them. More than this, we see that Paul uses baptism as a conscious appeal. He appeals to the consciousness of the people, reminding them of the significance of this moment so that they might have a new perspective, that they might change their action, that they might live, repent accordingly. Uh, Peter says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 3. You can turn there if you wish. 1 Peter 3, there's some explanation on baptism is here as well. Verse 21 says, Baptism which corresponds to this, namely the salvation of Noah you know, in the ark, which represented the salvation of the Lord. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus died for you, if he defeated sin and there's proof positive in his resurrection, then your appeal to God is, is as follows. Because I died with Jesus, my sin is atoned for. Because I rose with Jesus and that was sealed in my baptism, I look forward to the hope of eternal life. Therefore, it's not the washing away of dirt, but what it represents that carries this real power. It's this conscious appeal. It's this point of contact. It's this proof positive. It's evidence and certainty that God is more powerful than sin. 
that Christianity is more powerful than the popular notions of our day. That the Christian walk has sufficient armaments to defend you from the worst of enemies. In fact, if death, the last enemy, can be defeated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we can defeat this philosophical enemy, whatever shape it takes, the cultural pressures of our day. That's the message. Finally, there's a sufficiency of the incarnation that Paul refers to. That is the fact that God became a man, dwelt among us, and in him the fullness. In Christ the man, the fullness of the deity dwelt bodily. That should carry some weight in your confidence moving forward. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with this... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 9 is the verse I'm after. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The sufficiency of the incarnation. In other words, if God stoops so low, if he condescended to take on human flesh, as we've been speaking about in many messages along these lines or applications thereof, if God, who is majestic in his holiness, if Jesus Christ, who forever existed as the second person of the Trinity in his pre-incarnate glory, took on the call to become a man, took on human flesh, entered into our existence, yet remained fully God, this absolute miracle above miracles of the incarnation, should it not emphasize to us that our posture of conviction represented by baptism, which is to be included in the incarnate work of Christ as the ground security and assurance of our own salvation, is that not sufficient ground for us to stand confidently, boldly, and not just remain unfazed, but to take ground for the kingdom of God? Absolutely. New circumcision, baptism, grants us a posture of conviction. In taking on, or in our baptism, we associate with a reality that now gives us the power to stand. It provides for us, as we meditate upon its reality, a disposition, if you will, of the soul. Or, in baptism, the believer assumes a posture, a position of conviction against philosophies, deceit, human tradition, elemental spirits of the world, and any other potential enemy against the work of Christ in his church. Therefore, we have point number one, the new circumcision or baptism is a posture of conviction. Now, let me give a brief application point. In the case of the Reformed Baptist position, as it were, in my judgment, therefore, it would seem fitting that the, uh, that the symbol or that the covenant sign of baptism would be administered to those who can comprehend and apply it. That is to say, if baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience, or if indeed baptism is a posture of conviction, it would seem fitting that it be administered to those who can apply and comprehend. Without fielding some perhaps well thought out of potential objections to that point, let me continue. Again, in the interest of disclosure. Point number two. The new circumcision or baptism is a right of covenant, headship, affiliation. It means I am included. I am part of the community, part of the family, part of the nation, part of the lineage. I, um, as 1 Peter also says, if you recall recently in chapter 2, there's covenant affiliation language that we emphasize so strongly because, again, the philosophy of our day, of our day is to replace this with something else. But what does Peter say about the church who are, hey, kids, can you remind us? What does Peter call the church? We are 
Elect exiles, very good. We are elect exiles, sojourners, so these are some of the distinctives that mark our intermediate phase between receiving the fullness of the covenant promises and the calling and regeneration which initiates our Christian walk. Notice this covenant affiliation language, covenant belonging language. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So in that testimony there, in that proclamation, Peter is describing what Paul has already said, that a baptism represents a rite of covenant affiliation. Because we have been changed and baptism represents that change, we are now counted among a new people, a new priesthood, a new ethnic identity, a new nationality. We have a new king. Christ is our king. We belong to him. This is our primary point of identity in the new covenant. So a rite of covenant headship affiliation. Now this is prefigured in covenants of old. I want you to notice this. We'll turn to two cross-references. Cross First one in Romans 4. Paul lays out this concept by citing a couple of examples. Among them, in Romans 4, is in fact Abraham. Romans 4, 11, and 12. Beg your pardon while I uh, find my place here. Wrong book. Here we go. Romans 4, 11 and 12, he, speaking of Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also, but who also walk in the footsteps of of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So that can be confusing at first read. Suffice it to say, what Paul is saying is that circumcision of old was a rite of covenant affiliation. Those who were in relationship with Abraham, who were counted among the communion or the community of Abraham, bore the distinctive of circumcision, at least the males, that is to say, as a result. This demonstrating that this rite, that this symbol, that this uh, typology, if you will, what went before in Old Covenant terms, laid out this principle. It represented an affiliation with a covenant head. First Corinthians, Paul says uh, as much or similar language applied to Moses. You can turn there if you wish. First Corinthians chapter 10. Here he uses the term baptism to describe an affiliation with Moses. Verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all, verse 2, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He goes on, and all ate the same spiritual drink and all drank the same spiritual drink, or all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So here again, Though everyone who passed through the sea was included with the experience of Moses, and this was described as a baptism. Let me try to illustrate this with a, I'm sorry, a trivial illustration. Does anyone remember that phrase, been there, done that, got the t-shirt? It's sort of a trivial example. 
But if you were describing an experience, someone else might say, hey, you don't have to describe it anymore. I experienced the same thing. I went to that same water park. I went down that crazy uh, slip and slide deal. I felt like I almost broke my neck and I got the t-shirt. I survived, you know, something, something flume ride or whatever. So if in that illustration, that shared experience um, between two individuals binds them, binds them together in a common reality, right? They both experience the same water park. And then there's a covenant symbol related to it, if you will, which would be the t-shirt. They both experienced the same event. They both got the t-shirts. That's a trivial example. Well, in the case of Abraham and Moses, if you were in Abraham and you both, and did, to, both of you were circumcised, that sets you apart from the pagans as associated with the covenant head. Whatever blessings were to be uh, Abraham's were to be yours. And circumcision marked you accordingly. Similarly, if you were in the Red Sea on crossing on dry land and exited to the other side and went up the uh, hillside on the opposite shore and then the seas collapsed. Since you had shared that same experience with Moses, you recounted in that baptism, that unity of experience as in, if you will, the covenant of Moses. So like Abraham and like Moses, the right, if you will, of baptism represents covenant headship affiliation with Jesus Christ. These pictures of old were type. They were shadow. But the substance is baptism, Jesus Christ. All who have been truly and sincerely baptized into the gospel have now been identified by that rite, by that symbol, by that ritual, if you will, in relationship with Jesus Christ. It represents union with him. Notice in Colossians chapter 2, as we return to our primary text, how Paul emphasizes this. He says, for instance, in verse 11, in him, that means in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Notice that in him language. Uh, verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, as we just read, with a circumcision made without hands. That in him language is union with Christ language, so to speak. That describes the people who have been marked by baptism to be included in the experience of Christ's death, which prayed for their sins, and his resurrection, which certified their own eternal life. This is what it means to be filled in him. And Paul says, live like an overcomer. Live like a triumphant one who's been purchased by the most precious commodity of all, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Live like one who has victory and power and authority over rulers and authorities. And again, philosophy, empty seat, and so on and so forth. Human traditions and elemental spirits. Why? Because you have been filled in him. That is the fullness of God's promises are available to you by virtue of your union or inclusion in relationship, or in the covenant of Christ. By virtue of your relationship with Jesus, by affiliation with Christ, as your covenant head, you are assured ultimate salvation. Praise the Lord. This is what is certified to us in baptism. We are filled in Him. For instance, what, kind, or what filling is Paul referring to? Again, our center of gravity verse, verse 12. What does it mean to be filled in him? It means that you were buried with him in baptism. 
That means your sins were atoned for by his act on Calvary. What does it mean to be filled in him? That means that you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And in being raised with him, we have certified the promise of new birth, eternal life, or we have certified the reality of new birth, regeneration, that our heart has changed. So it means to be raised with him unto eternal life. And these signs or this experience is attended by faith in the sovereign power of God to effectuate these things. If you stood before, I don't know what your baptism looked like, but sometimes here at Providence, in the past we've had, uh, or I guess invariably, we've had testimonies where people stood before the people of God and they made a public profession of faith that they themselves have been buried with Christ, so to speak, that they themselves have been raised with him, that they had faith, that by the powerful working of God who sent his son in the incarnation to sufficiently pay for sin and certified our own eternal life by raising him from the dead, that they were absolutely certain of their own salvation. And they proceeded in baptism to testify to the same as the new covenant sign, the new circumcision sign, as it were, was applied to them. This all speaks to this right of covenant headship affiliation speaks to the superiority of Christ. This note is the theme of Hebrews. Though there were covenant heads of old, Adam, um, Abraham, Moses, who we recalled earlier, and some of them were impressive in their own ways, but each one insufficient and a failure nevertheless, Jesus Christ is superior to them all. As a rite of covenant affiliation, baptism certifies that we are bound in covenant to the superior covenant head of all. He is head of all rule and authority. 10b, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You can rest assured that you are bound in covenant to the one who is superior over all. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and do what? Make disciples of all nations and do what? Baptize them. Administer the covenant sign as it were, recognizing that that represents union with a covenant head who is absolutely sovereign. And this is the glory that we have in the new covenant. Inasmuch as Jesus Christ is the perfect significant son. He is the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is the one in the lineage, if you will, or in the legacy of the prophetic role of Moses. He is the second Adam, as the scriptures say, the one who performed perfectly what all the covenant heads who symbolize him before failed to do. And as such, he is superior. Now, as we look, oh, one more reference in 15, notice this, speaking to, of the superiority of Jesus. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And here, the scholars tell us, is recalled a victory parade after a battle campaign. Um, kids, you ever been to a parade? Yeah. So parade uh, is a time of celebration, right? And uh, what's your favorite part of a parade, kids? Oh, yeah, candy. Universal answer. Celebration. celebration. Candy, good. Yep, good uh, spiritual points in the celebration. Thank you, my son. I earned a dollar for helping Dad with an analogy there. Um, so at a, at a parade, you have a celebration, and this is sort of lost on us a little bit, but I think we can relate, of a particular event. 
So on the 4th of July, a lot of times there's a parade. This parade represents victory to secure our independence as a nation for what it's worth, right? So everybody fills the streets once a year and ostensibly celebrates um, the uh, victory over an occupying or uh, over a tyrannical force, namely King George and so forth, and uh, the establishment of an independent nation. Well, this parade language is used here of Jesus Christ's own victory. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. The very tools that they brought against him to, on, on Calvary and his death were the very tools that he used to defeat death in the grave. Absolutely powerful turning of the tables. And when he did so, he proved the enemy a fool, and he proved him to be defeated, broken under his feet. Uh, Genesis 3.15, announcement of the gospel was fulfilled. Yes, the seed of the serpent was, or the serpent was able to bruise his heel in the death of Christ, but he crushed his head on Calvary. And Satan was paraded then, as it were, and the spiritual forces and wickedness and everything were paraded in the victory train of Jesus Christ. And so it will be at the end of the age as well, such that we need not fear philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, elemental spirits of the world, things past, things present, things to come, height nor depth. You know, there's so much language in Scripture that illustrates the scope of God's sovereignty. Why? Because Jesus Christ has disarmed all rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, imagine you were, you know, hitching your, your wagon train, as it were, your tent, you're pitching it alongside Abram or Abraham, and he had one of his really bad fallout moments where he was lying again about his wife being his sister uh, in order to save himself from the king who might take or protect him and his wife from the king's advances and so forth. And then you thought to yourself, wow, this is discouraging. I have been circumcised. I mean, I went through a painful experience to be associated with this guy, but this covenant head is not so reliable, right? So Abraham, in those instances, did not act like a triumphant covenant head. Nevertheless, the hope of the covenant was that Abraham was just a symbol. And that circumcision, as far as it represented affiliation with the Abrahamic covenant, was just a type. But the antitype, if you will, or the substance or the fulfillment would be Jesus. And he was victorious above all. And in him we have the perfect covenant head. Let me make application. So, in light of this, it would seem that, the, um, that a baptism represents affiliation with Christ, union with him, and, per, and as such, it seems to me, would best be... Uh, applied or prescribed to those who are in the covenant of Christ. And so that's a little distinctive of the Baptist position. So when should the covenant sign be uh, prescribed or applied? There's some um, debate on the issue. However, as far as I can tell or from my own conviction, it would seem fitting that the covenant sign would be applied at the time where that's, there that testimony of regeneration of union with Christ is reality, such that the symbol then represents the reality at that time, that baptism, the new circumcision, is a rite of covenant headship affiliation. Um, point number three, last major point, we'll close with a little bit application. A rite, so the new circumcision or baptism is a rite of applied circumcision. A rite of applied circumcision. What could this mean? Well, verse 11 13 and 14 say as much. Notice in Colossians 2 again. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ. And then we have our center of gravity verse. And then Paul proceeds with this language of applied circumcision in verse 13. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven, forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So baptism is a circumcision or is associated with circumcision of, of a sort. But this circumcision is different than the physical representation of old. This circumcision is of a spiritual quality. You have been filled in him, or in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So this circumcision, or the cutting off of the unclean, or the removal of the sin nature, as it were, so uh, is referring to a spiritual act where Jesus himself was cut off from the people. We won't turn there this morning, but Hebrews 13, 10 through 13 says that it was necessary, even geographically, for Jesus to be crucified outside the city. Why? Because there were certain sacrifices of old that were to be offered outside the people. And this was a picture. It was a picture of the sacrifice being cut off for the people's sake. Jesus was cut off for the sake of sinners. He was crucified outside the camp. The scriptures say that he became sin. He took on sin in his flesh, as it were, and was crucified for our sin on that act. And that act, Paul describes as a circumcision of sorts. He says, by putting off the body of the flesh. So what is cut off? Body of the flesh refers to the sin nature. When Jesus Christ was cut off from the people, he was also cut off for his people. Jesus Christ was separated from the people, fulfilling that picture of consecrated holiness that we see all through the Old Testament law. Jesus Christ was cut off from the people and being crucified outside the camp, as it were, outside Jerusalem. But Jesus was also cut off for the people, that we would not have to be cut off from the fellowship of the sacred and the holy. Kids, remember the picture? Could Adam and Eve go right back to the Garden of Eden? You guys told me no. And, and why not? Why not? What stood in the way? That's correct. A little review. Two angels, Theo reminds us, with flaming swords, guard the way into the presence and the communion of God. And what does this illustrate? That without sword judgment for sin, there is no entry into fellowship, friendship, relationship, covenant with the Lord. So either you take the punishment that your sin deserves in a sword judgment cutting you off from the place of holy communion with him, or someone else takes it for you. When Jesus Christ was pierced in his side with that spear, he was taking the sword judgment. The sword that those cherubim held, as it were, in their hands of the Garden of Eden, pierced his side. And because he was cut off from you, and because he was cut off for you, you have entrance into the place of dwelling in perfect communion, in peace, reconciliation, and atonement with the Holy God. This is the spirituality, or this is the spiritual reality of circumcision. It represented a necessary cutting off. And as such, baptism represents this. It's a rite of applied circumcision. It's a rite that corresponds to a circumcision that is applied to you that was taken by Jesus himself. Paul expounds this in verse 13 by saying, And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. In other words, because Jesus was circumcised, as it were, because he was cut off from the people and for the people, so you, 
in your uncircumcision were now rendered dead to the old man, but then alive with him. Why? Because in Christ, all your trespasses, all your sins are forgiven, having been paid for by his endurance of the sword judgment. Dead versus alive. The death of sin equals uncircumcision of the flesh. Christ's work on Calvary equals, or the cross equals circumcision as it were. Christ's work on the cross equals the cutting off or the circumcision that effectuated our new birth and regeneration and seals the fact that we will be raised unto eternal life. And this goes hand in hand with justification. Verse 14 says as much. By So how did Christ do this? He did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There's a term in theology and in law called forensic, and it means with reference to judicial proceedings. It means with reference to a court you know, hearing or with reference to the law. What Paul is saying here is he is uh, establishing the forensic reality of justification. That is to say, imagine your sins, and you can't even think of them all. There would be too many to count. But I'm sure for everyone in this room, a few stick out in your head. Now imagine those being nailed to the cross. In other words, that message is this. Whoever committed these sins, you know, thou shalt not lie. Kids, tell me another uh, one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet, covet. thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, steal. thou shalt not commit adultery. That's good. We'll, we'll stop there. So as you look at the cross, see to it, thou shalt not steal. And remember the time that you stole and whatever took place in that cross paid for that sin. That's what is pictured here. The record of debt against us is canceled because it was applied to the death of Jesus Christ. And thus, this rite of applied circumcision is a spiritual reality it's the difference between life and death is by means of justification, and baptism signifies as much. And again, it would seem that the administration of baptism that would most fittingly correspond to applied circumcision would be when this happened in the experience of the believer. Finally, fulfillment and continuity. And this is just to summarize, shadow and substance. So in the Old Covenant, there were two things, at least, that God said would happen forever. They'd be a rite, a ritual. They would be a covenant reality forever. One was circumcision. The other is Passover. Two references you could study in your own time, Genesis 17, 3. That was from our text recently. The other, Exodus 12, 14. In Exodus 12, 14, the Passover is commanded, and God says, let this be a statute among you forever. So kids, I have a question for you. What is the Passover today? We don't celebrate the Passover today, but what do we celebrate that is the fulfillment of Passover? Very good, Ren. I think you're 100% today. Communion. That is correct. So just like baptism is the fulfillment and the continuity, the continuing reality of the covenant uh, of circumcision, so communion, which we'll participate at the Lord's table next week, is the fulfillment and the continuation of the Passover ritual, the Passover, uh, um, the Passover covenant that God made with His people upon the Exodus, upon their deliverance from Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. All of this Paul wraps up in verse 17 by saying that the substance belongs to Christ. These are a shadow, he says, of the things to come. And of course, there we've recognized what he's referring to: Passover. 
Things like the Old Covenant ritual sacrifices. Things like circumcision of old. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. As we said, one thing that we can learn from Psalm 106 is God is a jealous God. And this is true in this case as well. The substance of covenant affiliation, the substance of covenant reality, covenant promises, all of it belongs to Christ. There is not a shadow yet remaining. None of it can ultimately be based on questions of food or drink, with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. No, these were but shadow. The substance belongs to Christ. And in baptism, we see fulfilled the picture, the shadow of the old, and it, it lays forth, the, as Paul has laid out, the fulfillment in the new, such that we know for certain in the picture of baptism and what it represents, that is the burial of Jesus Christ for our sins and his resurrection from the grave that fulfilled the substance of the covenant, such that by this assurance, we have eternal life. Thus, in summary, this fulfillment is marked by a change in covenant sign. As we said earlier, that when there's a change in the course of redemptive history, in the covenant, that is something that was more shadowy, is now revealed in fulfillment or fullness. When this happens, this uh, revelation of covenant sign fulfillment uh, sometimes is accompanied by a change in covenant sign. And so it is with baptism. This fulfillment is marked by a change was, was one circumcision, now has been replaced, been superseded by baptism. And this much we can perhaps say in summary. The old represented union with Abram, Abraham by birth or by communal association. So to be circumcised and be accounted with Abraham, that represented an affiliation with the covenant head Abram, Abraham by birth or communal association. Now this typologically, this symbolizes or it prefigures something to come. Now, members of the new covenant are bound by union with Jesus Christ. Whereas, again, that uh, circumcision represented union with Abraham, first, or at least in that typological sense, now uh, baptism represents union or inclusion in the covenant of Christ. Circumcision, that act of the of physical nature of cutting off, gives way to baptism, which is the sprinkling immersion of water the church has held both views as far as mode. Suffice it to say that this is the new administration of the sign whereby we signify that we have been buried with Christ and raised with him. Incidentally, I like the immersion view because of what it tends to picture there, not a hill to die on. Males only, that is boys only in the old covenant, uh, that uh, covenant group that received the sign now gives way to male and female in Christ. Whereas in the old, only the boys, only the males, only those who are born in eight days old or those who are affiliated with relationship or by purchase in the community of Abraham would receive the sign. Now in the new covenant, in the fulfillment, in baptism, both male and female receive the sign. Ordinary application corresponding to physical birth. And here's a little, you know, uh, qualifier here. This is the Reformed Baptist view, as it were. Ordinary application corresponding to physical birth gives way to spiritual birth. That is to say, in the Old Covenant, those who are eight days old uh, past physical birth were to receive the covenant sign. In the New Covenant, you might call me, I guess, a spiritual paedo-baptist. All who are born again are to receive the covenant sign. And then baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision the covenant sign, or and then in closing, 
we can at least perhaps agree on this much. Baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision, the covenant sign of union, union with the ultimate significant son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And last thing to note here, in context of Genesis, we've been tracing the lineage of the significant sons. And as we've touched upon the, that lineage fulfilled in Colossians 2, we see that the greater Abraham has arrived. We see that the greater Moses has become incarnate. We see that the greater David and king is here. We see that the greater Isaiah, Jeremiah, and prophet has come. We see that the greater Passover lamb is here, the sacrifice that is sufficient. And so baptism represents that something has changed in the history of redemption. That which looked forward to Christ has now given way to a sign that reflects that he has come. And so now every believer and everyone who is truly baptized post that moment has been baptized into Jesus Christ, the perfect covenant head. Baptism is the fulfillment of circumcision, the covenant sign of union with the ultimate significant son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for this message from your scripture that reminds us of the depth and the precision and the profundity of what you have revealed in these manifold ways through scripture. I pray that your spirit would use the proclamation of your word to build certainty and clarification in our minds and boldness. As we opened with that application that is so relevant for us, I pray that as we look back to the significance of our experience in Christ and what is pictured in baptism, that you would give us strength and authority to stand against any competing worldviews. And I pray also that our testimony of assurance of these things would be a beacon of hope for the lost as you use us to reach, Lord Jesus, by our testimony, by the words that you give us opportunity, and by sharing the gospel from this pulpit through our families and through the world beyond. As we share the gospel with the lost, I pray that the message of hope in the significant Son who has come in Christ our Lord would ring in the ears of the lost until they repent and turn. Oh Lord, we long for systemic revival in this land, but we know there are no shortcuts. So grant us grace, however few we may be, to bear this message of powerful hope in Jesus Christ alone. And may it be to the advancement of your purposes and our day, the advancement of your kingdom and the growth of your church, all to the glory and in the name of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.